Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is joined by Lauren McDonald, the founder of EV Adoption. Join us as they discuss the shift from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, smart charging, the obstacles surrounding solar power, and the exciting potential of bi-directional charging. It all starts now on The Solar Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, the host. I'm thrilled to actually be joined today with Lauren McDonald. Lauren McDonald's a frequent speaker. His content can be easily consumed and found online. Uh, he also spends a lot of time on stage. He's actually spoken to many different audiences. Uh, certainly is an expert in the space of EV, but is an outdoorsman, is an avid recycler, is an avid some uh, renewables energy sort of a person. So we're thrilled to have him on the, on the podcast. And obviously, um, we've been talking a lot about uh, electric vehicles as of late because uh, it's a it's a hand in glove relationship between solar and electric vehicles. So we're certainly going to dive into that. But we're thrilled to have um, a huge a uh, electric vehicle component, a huge uh, outdoorsman, a huge speaker that's online to ha- to be able to join us here on the podcast. Lauren, thanks so much for coming on. Dave, thanks. I'm I'm really honored to be on. And and as you said, it is uh, such great synergy between solar and electric vehicles obviously one of the things that that i'm sure we'll dive into is just the idea of uh, around the grid and the the sources of energy and the greener the grid gets the more you know powerful if you will and the more advantageous advantageous uh the transition to electric vehicles is so it's a great uh great overlap and synergy between the two so really excited to be on today's podcast yeah, so you and I talk a lot about some of the same stuff, and we've arrived at our own conclusions as it relates to electric vehicles and energy and renewables, these sorts of things. But we have pretty significantly different backgrounds. So uh, I grew up in a small coal mining town in Montana. You're from the Bay Area. So I'd love uh, for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. Tell us maybe a little bit about, uh, about your background and and uh, maybe how that was influential and how you have sort of like the, the direction you took professionally and personally. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in in Oakland, California. So most people have probably heard of Oakland because of uh, uh, the sports teams who are increasingly are leaving Oakland for for yes, other other areas <laughs> like like Las Vegas. But you know, I I grew up in in and obviously in Northern California, which is arguably you know one of the hotbeds of progressive thinking and the environment and and social activities and things like that. You know, I grew up in. In the 60s, where there was, you know, a lot of uh, politics and, you know, a lot, lot of, a uh, lot of change happening, you know, the, the hippies and and everything like that. And so, uh, and my parents, uh, we obviously, we also had a, a cabin uh, up uh, about three hours from from the Bay Area, where we would literally go to every weekend, and it was up there in the woods and. Um, you know, we had, uh, my sister had horses and I had uh, dirt bikes and, you know, and, and rifles and chainsaws. And, you know, I just, I learned to love and live in the out outdoors. And, uh, that really sort of formed a lot of my thinking. I was also a big fan of, you know, of, of people like, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and, and others who, who really instituted a lot of the early, sort of, you know, national parks and, and, and sort of ways to think about moving sort of the environment forward. Uh, later I got into backpacking and things like that. So I always had this predilection towards the, you know, the environment and recycling. I was one of those people that would walk along the roads, whether it was in Oakland or at our cabin and, and pick up, you know, beer cans and things like that, and then take it to the recycling center and buy Black Sabbath records with it or, 
whatever I was in, in, into at the time. But uh, so, yeah, and I was just, just always sort of being in, in that sort of environment, uh, pun intended, um, just was, was always interested in, as you said, you know, in recycling and ultimately EVs. I mean, back in the day, EVs didn't sort of really exist, but, uh, you know, I knew, I knew they were the, the, the future at some level. So even though I wasn't in the industry back then, um, you know, I always had a sense that, uh, that, that, that would be part of my future. Yeah. I grew up in a, in a place where, I mean, literally recycling is not an option. So if you, uh, grew up in, in a prairie town in Montana, I mean, if you were to recycle, you'd have to collect the raw materials that you are, the materials, the waste that you'd want to recycle and then ship it a very, very, very long way away. I mean, the, the cost benefit analysis is almost none, right? Or it's negative, I should say. And so, um, you know, you're, you're, you grew up in a much different place. So I remember we actually lived, I personally lived in Northern California, the Bay Area for a uh, better part of a decade or more than a decade, I should say, not the better part, more than a decade um, in most of my adult life. And that's where most of my upbringing and raising of my kids happened. Um, and it's just a much different sentiment. In fact, I believe that the Bay Area in California is uh, still, they, they boast that they recycle um, you know, far more than 50 or 60 or 70% of all of the waste material, which is far more than anywhere else, which I think is actually really commendable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are recycling centers everywhere. And then, you know, really the big shift, which is, uh, I think in, in most markets in the U S now is, you know, we have three different trucks that show up, you know, our, our, our pickup day is Monday, right? So we have the black can, which is, which is trash. We have the blue can, which is all the recycles and the green, which is the yard waste. Right. And, um, uh, I've actually got it down to sort of the, the black bin is literally, I only put like a couple of inches of things that everything else goes into those, those other two bins. So ultimately that was a big shift, right? So that you didn't actually have to drive those, you know, aluminum cans and bottles and things, you know, 10 miles away to a recycling center, they come to us now, which uh, I think was, you know, a huge game changer. The real issue, and this is obviously not what we're talking about today, today, Dave, but you know, the real challenge now is, is to your point of like, where are these things being recycled? And a lot of it is way overseas and stuff. And, and, uh, they're not buying those things back from us anymore. So that's become a real challenge, but that's a, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> It's a nice segue though. And I think the thing that I really wanted to kind of call out was this idea of this being socially responsible. And I think most people that recycle, you know, they have a sense or a feeling that they're doing their part and that they're trying to be socially responsible. Um, you growing up in the Bay Area, that's something that you would have been raised with. The way I was raised with it, it was a little bit different, right? So I grew up uh, surrounded by outdoorsmen in Montana and they just had a certain respect for the outdoors and wanted to take care of it. And many of them were farmers and ranchers and agriculturalists and and wanted to take care of the land because the land uh, very literally is what took care of them and provided for their families. And and so uh, I think that we sort of like all feel like this sense of stewardship and responsibility uh, comes from different sources in different ways. And we all want to do things that are impactful. I think some people um, are oftentimes disappointed to find out that, you know, recycling by itself in terms of like uh, your social impact and your carbon footprint is a pretty minimal thing relative to so many other things. The two biggest things being obviously the consumption of energy in your own home. And the second thing is, is how you transport, how you, how you get around, whether you're using, um, you know, internal combustion engines or whether you're using electronic vehicles and how you charge the vehicles, uh, whether you're using public transportation, whether that public transportation is just from renewable sources. And so these are the things that are far more impactful. Um, but I don't think that they have had, um, as good of publicity, as good of PR 
as recycling. Most people generally have accepted that recycling is a good thing. Um, but EV adoption, I don't think, uh, I think that there are uh, people that are still arguing that it's not necessarily better for the environment, for example, or it's not as impactful. And a lot of the work that you do is to help educate people about the importance of electrifying the grid for, excuse me, electrifying our homes and electrifying um, our vehicles. Uh, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the sort of initiatives and things that that you work on to really just be educational as it relates to these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, the the, the first thing is is you know people often often call me an, an an EV advocate and and when I started out that was probably a, a reasonable description, but I I actually just took a step back and and decided to kind of pivot away from that kind of you know title and positioning rather and and really wanted to be thought of more as an analyst and and that was really sort of kind of the big shift in other words to your point dave when i started out it was all about hey i've got to i've got to promote electric vehicles uh as as the future and that but as as i got more and more into it and it became not just like a hobby and a passion or i was you know i was full-time employed at a big company as actually a marketing evangelist um and you know that sort of you know, played over into into the electric vehicle side, but but the more I got into it, I realized that I wanted to, you know, again, sort of be more of an objective analyst and actually try to step back and understand what is the best way to reduce greenhouse gases from transportation, right? Because ultimately, you know, I believe the goal is not necessarily electrification. That may be how we get there, right? But the the real goal is we're trying to reduce greenhouse gases from all sources but in this case from transportation. And, and the answer to that actually is not just electric vehicles. It's actually, and this is one of my big points I just made on stage on Friday, is, is we actually have to reduce how much we drive gas-powered vehicles. Because even if even at the rate that we're going with EV adoption, and if we hit some of the, the, the goals that we're targeting with the new APA um, uh, proposed regulations, uh, there's still going to be about 270 million gas-powered vehicles on the road in 2030, right? We'll we'll, we'll only lose about 10 million in in the next seven to t seven to ten years, right? And we, Dave, we're not going to get this is America, right? We're not going to get rid of, you know, 150 million gas-powered vehicles just out of uh, people, you know, wanting to do it to reduce. Uh, their their greenhouse gases, uh, you know, from from their their personal transportation. So we've got to get people actually not just adopting electric vehicles, but we've got to actually get them out of gas powered cars. We've got to get them to reduce what we refer to as VMT, the vehicle miles traveled. Right. So most people will drive a car twelve to fourteen thousand miles a year. Um, I hate averages, but that's kind of the you know the average. It, it varies. You know, from your your home. Area in Montana is probably closer to sixteen thousand. In in the Bay Area, it's like eight to ten thousand, right? Because because people can have other sort of options and don't have to drive as far. But the reality is is uh, the the answer. And to get back to my point is is that that I wanted to actually talk about you know kind of what is the solution? What is the actually roadmap to reducing? greenhouse gases and EVs are a big part of that and that's my focus but the real answer is we have to do a lot of other things as well we got to get people on bicycles and walking 
back on public transportation, driving less. There's a whole slew of things with it that, that we actually have to do. Yeah, you might actually be highlighting one of the real challenges that the EV space has in terms of being able to sort of like push the proliferation of electric vehicles, because that's obviously part of it as well. I mean, if people, like if I drive an electric vehicle, in terms of the miles I'm driving, I'm not driving a combustion engine by definition. I might have one, but I might not be driving in. So it's the miles traveled. So I think you might be highlighting one of the real issues that the, you know, anytime you have a transition or a change, sometimes you start with the proposed change and then you try to justify it. Confirmation right. bias is one of yep. the things that yep. they call that. And so I think what you're talking about here is, is you're talking about sort of like, what's the real root problem that we're trying to solve for here, which is the idea of trying to re reduce individuals' carbon footprint and impact and reduction of, uh, of, uh, of emissions and, and greenhouse gases. And I think that that's the right approach. It's the noble approach. I think on this podcast, for time's sake, we probably make the leap that most people that are listening have have sort of already sort of like taken or accepted that that is the what 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 we're trying to solve for and um and 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 the fact remains uh that it's not universally accepted but the fact still remains that reducing or electrifying your home and then pulling a, a renewable energy into your home is the number one thing that you can do to reduce your your carbon footprint for the average homeowner and the second thing is obviously making a transition uh from an internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle those are the two most impactful things and probably represent 60 or 70% of any individual's carbon footprint. That also makes the assumption that, again, you're charging your vehicle from renewable sources. That assumes that you're getting all of your power from renewable sources. and uh, or, or at least a sig significant percentage of it. Yeah. Yeah, yep. that's right. That's right. So, so Lauren, I mean, I, I, love, I love your approach is really to talk about it from the top level, which is what are we really trying to solve for? And what are the tools at our disposal to solve for that? Electric, vehicle, electric vehicles is one of those things. Uh, so maybe you can kind of help maybe further develop that concept or that idea for our listeners here as well. So why is it that, um, you know, what, what are the sort of high level talking points uh, once you've kind of helped a, a person understand that, you know, we want to reduce uh, greenhouse uh, gases? What are the sort of talking points as to why you're advocating strongly for EVs as part of that solution. Yeah, I mean, to to, to your point, um, uh, you know, when when we think about gas-powered vehicles, uh, fundamentally, we think about those sort of tailpipe emissions, right? So we think about the burning of gas or diesel and those emissions emissions that come out. If uh, you know, any of your listeners are old enough to remember uh, photographs of of Southern California and Los Angeles back in the, the 60s and 70s, it was like almost dark during the day, right? And 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 so one of the things that that I think, uh, Dave, that that the EV advocates and in industry have sort of missed is is is, is they they focused on sort of GHGs, right? But but your average person, you can't see it, you can't feel it, right? I mean, sure, maybe you 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 can sort of internalize it when you think about um, how it's impacting, you know, climate and, and, and things like that, but reducing air pollution, right. And even noise pollution is something that, that an average person can actually see sort of in, in feel. Right. And so I think, you know, from an education perspective, uh, obviously the, the, the primary reason to transition electric vehicles is to, is to, uh, reduce or eliminate those tailpipe emissions. You know, a whole separate topic is obviously the life cycle emissions, which is something that 
that people who are not necessarily on board the transition electric vehicles like to bring up first and foremost, right? All of the the energy and everything that goes into producing the batteries and the battery cells and and, and those types of things. And a lot of them are, you know, made in, in Asia and China and places like that that are shipped over here. And so, you know, that gets into a whole separate issue of of actually truly understanding uh the the life cycle emissions uh, which gets again into sort of the sourcing of of the evs as well as the 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 grid sources right how are they actually being being you know being being charged being re refueled re replenished if you will and so that you know that gets you into sort of much much deeper conversation which i know we're going to sort of dive into but you know but fundamentally that that first step is just getting people to understand that we're getting rid of those uh, those emissions that are coming out of the tailpipe, right? And and reducing those um, uh, tailpipe emissions is sort of step one to getting people to understand the, the the change and the impact on on ultimately hitting those GHG reductions. But it gets really complicated after that when you start peeling back the the onion and truly comparing EVs to to what what in the industry we call ICE, the internal combustion engine powered vehicles. Yeah, I, I, I think what I'm hearing you say, which makes a lot of sense too, is, is, you know, when we talk about decarbonization, we're talking specifically about the greenhouse gases or the carbon that starts to build up in the atmosphere that affects, you know, so then, and the concept is, is actually was explained to me in my adult years. I was like, you know, what is this greenhouse effect is, well, light can travel through, um, you know, that, that carbon layer, but then once light hits the surface of the earth, it, it turns into at least in part heat and that heat gets captured or trapped because it can't escape through that same carbon layer or that greenhouse layer. Um, and, and anyone, and they call it a greenhouse effect for obvious reasons. If you have a greenhouse, that's how a greenhouse works as well. And so you can have the internal temperature of the greenhouse be significantly different than the external temperature, um, of the greenhouse. And, and, and we have essentially created that sort of a system by having or adding additional carbon to the atmospheric layer. Um, but you don't really see carbon, you know, it's, it, and, and so, you know, to the point, uh, I think that you're making is, is that, and I remember as a kid, so, uh, you talked about in Montana, I'd never been on a plane as a kid. So yes, we absolutely drove places. And when I was probably, uh, man, I must've been around eighth grade or so our family took our first like crazy trip where I, I left the state of Montana. I'd maybe visited Wyoming or North Dakota, but I, we did not venture too far outside of Montana. It was our own little heaven. Didn't have a reason to. But my uh, my family got adventurous and we saved our money and and took a trip uh, to the Mecca, Disneyland. And, and I remember driving down the I-15 and hearing about this concept of smog. And smog didn't really exist um, from uh, certainly not from um, internal combustion engines where I grew up. It was the big sky state. Uh, and I remember driving down I-15 and seeing that that L.A. landscape for the first time. And you saw that smog layer. And it was from those dirty internal combustion engines. And I remember at the time thinking, it was like, how could someone live like this? And, uh, and really probably what I was thinking at the time was just too many people. Again, I grew up in a prairie town in Montana. So, so people is what I was probably more afraid of than actually the smog layer. But yeah, and, and cars have gotten cleaner in the sense that you don't see that same smog layer. And um, I live in Salt Lake now. And Salt Lake uh, deals with every winter what they call an inversion where you're in a valley and you get this smog that gets sort of like held in because you have the, yeah, it can't escape. And, and, you, and every time a good storm comes through a weather system, it sort of like clears out all the air and everyone is happy about the air getting cleared out. Um, so people generally 
don't like smog. They don't like the smell of it. They don't like to hear it. They don't like, uh, or not hear it, excuse me. They don't like the, the smell of it. They, they know it's worse on their lungs, the lung quality, the air quality for breathing. Um, but it's really a lot more than just smog, right? I mean, we're talking about that carbon layer and that's the part where I think people, um, you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it. So those greenhouse gases that you can't see and you can't feel, there's so much skepticism by so many people as to whether or not it's even bad. And, and, and that's the part I don't think that the press or that the, it, it's had good PR. I don't think it's been explained well. I don't think people have fully accepted and embraced um, how detrimental and how negative these sorts of greenhouse gases really are. And then, and, you know, to your point, right, sort of the whole climate change thing is still, uh, is still very political, right? And it's still very much one of the many divides we have in this country, right? And so if you think about, if you think about sort of all the, the hurdles to getting, you know, American consumers to adopt electric vehicles, you know, one is range, one is, is, is price point, uh, charging uh, uh, infrastructure and availability, just models available in the, in the types that people want and are interested. Um, you know, if a significant part of the consumer client base just doesn't believe in, in climate change or is iffy on it, then you probably also removed uh, a reason for them to consider buying an electric vehicle in the first place, right? Because there's probably those other hurdles that that sort of remove their their considerations, right? And that's why, you know, out here in the crazy, you know, go, you know, California Golden State, right, where we we tend to believe in this stuff, right? That's why we're gonna, you know, last year we hit a twenty percent EV sales share. Uh, in in California, right? Versus uh, like you know your home state of Montana and North Dakota, South Dakota, and stuff. They were at one percent. So we have this we have this divide of literally there are there are many states in the U.S. where only one out of ten new vehicles purchased last year were electric, and then you have California where twenty out of a hundred you know, two out of 10. And in, in my home, home, uh, county, uh, uh, over in, uh, Alameda County, Oakland, Berkeley, Alameda, they're going to hit 40%. So four out of every 10 new vehicles purchased in Alameda County this year will be electric vehicles. Right. And again, your, you know, your, your home state of Montana will, will not hit even hit 2%. Right. So we have literally, you know, 20 times, more than 20 times the level of EV adoption from kind of the, you know, the, the low adopting markets to the high adopting markets. But even when, even within California, right? Like out in Imperial County, which is out sort of down towards the, the Mexican border, if you will, in Southern California, they were, they were at less than 5% last year versus, you know, again, sort of the near 40% in Alameda. So, you know, we, we have this aspect I, I like to I, I mentioned this on stage on Friday that EV adoption in the US is not an equal opportunity employer right in, in that there there are a lot of factors that sort of go into it like one again is if you if you step back and look at you know those states like Montana South Dakota North Dakota etc they sort of tend to be very rural right where people drive a lot longer so range and having pickup trucks with you know large batteries that can tow trailers and things like that this sort of haven't been available right and then they cost you know fifteen twenty thousand dollars more than a comparable uh, electric truck and stuff so a lot of this is just 
um, you know, sort of the supply and the markets aligning with sort of consumer demand. And we're going to get there. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's going to take a long time, right? So meanwhile, it's, it's the sort of higher income sort of left leaning often states on, on each of the coasts, right. Is, is where EV adoption is going to happen. And then it's, then it's going to go, go inward. You know, it's, I've had a chance to spend some time, uh, with, with Mary Barra, who's the CEO of, of General Motors. And in, a, in an EV event a couple years ago, she mentioned that, you know, uh, GM does really well in the middle of the country from a sales perspective. And they're very weak on the coast, which is where like Toyota and Honda uh, have particularly done, you know, very well in California. And now Tesla dominates uh, in, in California. I don't know if you knew this or not, Dave, but but last year, and it will happen this year as well, the Tesla Model Y and Model 3 will be the number one and two selling vehicles in California. Um, not just EVs, but of any vehicles. And so we get the EV, but it's, you know, we're still again, 10, 15 years away from reaching that same level of sort of enthusiasm and adoption in, in uh, not to keep picking on Montana, but on your, your home state of Montana, it's just, it's just going to take a while for, for many parts of the country to get there. Well, we should talk about what are the whys, why, why is it going to take a while, a while? And so, you know, as a marketing professional, I'm sure one of the things you've looked at is what's the number one sort of motivator or impetus for people that have gone to an electric vehicle? Why did they? And then to sort of like counterpoint that, what's the number one reason people don't go EV? Um, so I'm an yeah. EV driver, but I'm also a, a, you know, a huge solar proponent. I have solar on my house. And so um, I could make a very strong argument to anyone as to why they should couple the two together. I can make an environmental argument. I can make an economic uh, argument. Um, and I think both of them are, are extremely valid. Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting is I think people... When I'm explaining to them the value proposition, both economically and environmentally, it's like they're hearing it for the first time oftentimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But I would love to hear from your perspective, what what are the sort of like, uh, what's the sort of main reason that the 20% or even 40% Alameda County have made the decision to make the transition from a combustion engine over to, to EV and then and then also to, to counterpoint, to pick on my... Uh, my, my, my people back in Montana, what's the number one reason? And maybe not in Montana, maybe California. I think it, it's it, if you grew up in Montana, you know how far it is to get from one place to the next. So range anxiety would be a real thing in Montana, but it's not necessarily representative of the general sentiment for EVs. Yeah, we we I mean, we, we can uh, talk about sort of the, the why's and the why nots, but we should, we should also come back and sort of talk about, um, you know, kind of underneath that. What are some of the, the influencers sort of behind that and how that's changing? But, you know, historically. The, the the and we're still in the early adoption phase as we like to call it if you're you know listeners are familiar with um uh the tech what we commonly refer to as the technology adoption curve sort of how people adopt new technologies and you know the 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 initial reasons the same reasons people in california and other places initially bought like toyota priuses and went with hybrids right it was to save the planet right um and and that still is a motivator for a lot of people, but it's sort of it's as as we get towards that sort of more mainstream adoption, we're actually starting to see people buy EVs for different reasons. And a lot of surveys have pointed to 
just better technology. In other words, when and and you know, as you as you probably know, Tesla still dominates EV sales um, in 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 the U.S. There's you know dozens of other manufacturers and models out there, but but Tesla still dominates about sixty percent of of the sale of 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 EVs in America. And part of what attracts people is they just think that 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 EVs have better, newer, cooler technology. And so a lot of surveys and studies have pointed to that it's becoming less about you know, reducing GHGs and saving the planet is people just want, you know, better technology and, and cooler technology. I have, uh, I, I go for uh, one or two walks in my neighborhood every, every day to get out there and get some fresh air and think. And, and I actually dictate a lot of my, my articles and stuff. And then I stop and talk to one of my neighbors who had, had purchased a model Y and he's like a 30 something tech sales guy. He never once mentioned saving the planet or GHGs or anything like that. He bought a Tesla Model Y because he thought it was the coolest technology out there. And so we're seeing that sort of shift, Dave, in that, that uh, and it's actually a good thing, right? Be because then you can start to hit uh, different segments of the market. You can start to reach those people that are not motivated just by, you know, uh, environmental concerns and things like that. It's getting at to more of sort of a mainstream sort of consumer adoption factor, right? Sort of like the transition we had from cell phones to smartphones, right? Where it was about sort of better features and, and that type of thing. So um, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of twofold, right? It's, it's people tend to either be motivated by buying an EV because they want to help reduce the impact of climate change, or they just want a better car or, or truck, right? They, they like that sort of technology, that new technology. And that, and, that, and that sort of defines the idea of sort of the technology adoption curve, right? Those people that are early adopters, they want the latest and greatest technology. Uh, obviously, they have to be um, at the current state of market. They tend to be higher incomes, right? Because EVs tend to cost ten to fifteen thousand dollars more out out of the gate, right? And and not just on sort of price parity. One of the challenges, Dave, is that um, you know while a lot of the industry analysts focus on what we call price parity, that sort of difference between the cost to buy an EV versus the cost to buy a similar comparable uh, ice-powered vehicle, um, and and we're still you know, we're still many years away from reaching that price parity. Now, when you bring in the lower cost of fuel and the, and lower total ownership costs, right? Fewer things tend to go wrong with, with EVs. And so when you factor all those things in, that sort of uh, payback period uh, is, is actually sort of a, a lot lower, right? And But we tend to focus on that that initial cost. The problem with that exercise is your average consumer doesn't walk into a dealer and say, what's my total cost of ownership going to be for an EV versus a gas-powered car? Fleet managers do that, but consumers go, what's my monthly payment? What can I afford, right? And so that's where EVs still kind of tend to struggle with with, with certain parts of the market. So to, to your the flip side to your question is sort of what's what's holding, holding a, a lot of people back. Again, that first part is what I just talked about sort of just the, the monthly payments, right? The, the, the uh, affordability. And the, the challenge right now is because electric vehicles 
are not profitable for most of the automakers, right? So Ford announced that, you know, they lost like $3 billion last year on, on their electrification program, right? It's going to take years, right, to scale up the volume manufacturing, the supply chains, things like that. I just was reading an article this morning that Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, said they were able to get $5,000 out of the, the, the cost structure of the, the Mustang Mach-E this last year, right? So, you know, as, as, uh, as time moves along and, and the automakers scale up their factories and production, we're going we're gonna to reduce those cost differences. And that's going to be huge in making EVs affordable kind of to the, to the rest of the country. The second thing that, you know, you sort of touched on um, really was things like range, right? So range anxiety was sort of a huge uh, initial hurdle for, to, to getting people to consider an electric vehicle. Uh, there's been literally hundreds of, of surveys over the last 10, year, 10 years or so of consumers of what's holding them back from, from uh, buying an EV. And more, typically more than half of consumers uh, in these surveys say they want at least 300 or more miles of range before they were considered an EV. And the first several years of, of EVs on the market, there were like literally no EVs uh, with 300 miles of range. Now there are dozens of full battery electric vehicles with uh, more than 300 miles of range, some even with, with more than 500. The Lucid Air even has more than 500. It'll cost you a lot of money. But um, there are literally dozens of EVs now with, say, 275 uh, and, and, uh, and more miles of range. So range anxiety is sort of really sort of switching. Uh, for a lot of people, it's becoming less of an issue. And that range anxiety issue, that, that range hurdle is sort of transitioning to what we call charger anxiety, right? And so the shift is, okay, so now if I buy an EV, it probably has enough range to meet sort of my, my regular needs uh, uh, from a range perspective fairly easily. It's what about when I go on those sort of road trips, right? And I'm going to go on those sort of 500-mile road trips, et cetera. Where am I going to be able to charge? And so that's sort of the next thing that we're tackling. And and big part of that, Dave, is getting consumers to to sort of think differently about how they refuel, right? So EVs, um, as I like to say, they're the refueling of an EV is much more akin to charging your smartphone, um, which you know you don't you don't typically take out to a public charging location, right? You do it at home. You plug it in at night wake up in the morning with a full charge, right? And so people have to sort of change their thinking that that refueling an electric vehicle is 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 really about um, uh, parking and doing other things, right? So um, like when we go on 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 road trips, we think about what we want to eat, right? Charging is what you do while you do other things. You go eat, you go have a nice lunch, breakfast, dinner, you go, um, on um, uh, you go shopping, whatever it is, right? But consumers, most consumers expect EVs to refuel like like a gas-powered car. I'm going to drive it somewhere to a gas station, fill it up, and they hope it for it to be five minutes, right? And that that's not how you refuel uh, an electric vehicle, right? You park, and it, it charges while you refuel yourself. And, you know, people don't understand that right? And until they actually 
own and experience uh, uh, an electric vehicle. So that's really sort of charging after sort of, you know, affordability and getting people to accept that they, they actually, EVs have enough range. It's that sort of charging aspect is really kind of the, the I think, sort of the next key hurdle. And we've got a lot of government incentives and a lot of private uh, uh, enterprises are are chasing what I call sort of the biggest, uh, 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 you know, sort of, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's in essence, it's like the, the, the 1849 uh, period here in California, the gold rush, right? Like EV charging deployment in America is the modern gold rush. I run across literally like a dozen co new companies every day that are going after this space. Everybody's chasing this opportunity to basically build out an entirely new charging refueling infrastructure. Um, and uh, so it's just, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a massive, uh, massive opportunity. So, I mean, Tesla and then Rivian to a smaller degree, the two new EV companies yep. that have gone direct to consumer, it's changed, it's flipping the dealership model on its head a little bit. And there's a lot of regulation in certain states and Tesla actually and Rivian are fighting the fight to be able to continue to go direct to consumer. They certainly are trying to have the conversation about cost of ownership. And, um, and, and, and I think that obviously here on the solar podcast, we've talked a lot about this, the true cost of ownership. And if you're going to purchase a car, you really should understand what is the true cost of ownership of driving a vehicle. So you obviously have your monthly payment, but then you also have your, your, your maintenance costs. You also have your, um, the, 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 the fuel costs or the energy costs however you want to look at it. And when you look at those things holistically, I think you start to like bring the cost, uh, you know, you get a lot closer to cost parity. In fact, in some instances, um, it's far less expensive to drive an electric vehicle than to drive a standard ICE engine so, or uh, an ICE vehicle. And, and I mentioned that the, the um, uh, you know, fleet managers live and breathe in XL and, and, and that total cost of ownership but again, most consumers, when they walk into a dealer or in the case of, you know, Tesla, Lucid, Rivian, and some of the other startups, right, and they buy direct or, or whatever it is, is, you know, we think about what, what is the monthly payment I can afford, whether it's purchasing and a loan uh, or, or it's leasing, right? We don't, we don't think about uh, that over the cost, over five years or seven years, I'm actually going to lower my cost, right? We think about what can I afford right now? And so that's why sort of the value proposition of EVs is very different for like the commercial fleet space because those people truly get it because that's sort of what they're calculating on, on a daily basis, right? There are different challenges for sort of the, the fleet market when it comes to, to EVs, but, um, you know, Dave, a lot of people certainly are doing that, that a lot of consumers are doing that exercise that you're talking about, but your average consumer really fundamentally doesn't think about total cost of ownership. They think about monthly payments and affordability and yeah. And, and I would say that that's actually in part a consequence of the way that we've kind of conditioned ourselves to purchase and, 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 and buy vehicles. And so I think to your point, and as a marketing professional, you'd certainly recognize this to be true, dealerships that sort of embrace because there is a transition that's happening. It's there's the tailwinds uh, federally that are pushing electric vehicle adoption. And so the dealerships that really sort of embrace the model of helping consumers understand the true cost of ownership 
And then go even one step further and help people understand, look, we can also help you get smarter in the way that you electrify your home as well, meaning starting to couple solar with EV. And you know what's interesting about that is Tesla, who is selling an incredible amount of, uh, of, of, uh, of cars, obviously, in California and across the country, haven't actually cracked that code. And I think that there's opportunity and space for the OEMs, for all of the manufacturers, as well as the dealerships at the franchise level, and even your corner lot. Um, to, to help consumers understand, hey, look, we can not only help you get into a car, but we can also change the way that you electrify your home and change the way that you charge your vehicle. And I think when people start coupling those things together, there will be dealerships that sort of like rise because the value proposition to the consumer is going to be better and the sentiment's going to change as well. And that's something I'm actually really excited about. We've talked a lot about it on this podcast. Yeah, no, it's 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 great that you mentioned that in um, uh, a, a webcast that, that I'm involved with. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had on as a guest uh, a battery executive from Stellantis, the the parent company of what used to be called uh, uh, Fiat Chrysler. People referred were, were familiar with the, the brands underneath that in the U.S. Dodge, Chrysler, Jeep, etc. But um, this was a big part of, of what we talked about is, and you mentioned Tesla, right? Tesla was sort of the, the, the shining example of this where, um, you know, they are both an automotive company uh, and, and an energy company, right? With a battery storage and solar. Um, I have uh, solar city uh, panels on, on my house, which obviously is, as all your listeners know, Tesla uh, acquired years ago. So I have both a Tesla in my garage, a Tesla charger and, and Tesla solar on, on my roof. I don't have a I don't have battery backup, but I'm sure we'll 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 get into that topic as well because I do have a big battery sitting in my garage. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, what what you mentioned, Dave, is is it's going to be fascinating because that was one of the questions I asked our our the guest on on that other show is you know is is in ten years are we going to be looking at the auto industry is not the auto industry, right? It's really going to be this sort of broadened, integrated, you know, mobility and energy storage, right? And and that really is the direction that uh, that most of the major uh, automakers are going in, right? They, they're either building out or acquiring uh, uh, battery storage. So first, just, just for their EVs, but they're going to expand into that. Um, we've seen, you know, General Motors make a, a, a bunch of announcements around that. They have a, a separate energy division. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that hopefully is going to translate down to at the local level, right? Are we going to see dealers? Right? I've, I've written articles and, and things about this to get the dealers to think about not just selling the vehicles, but selling and installing the, the EV chargers, right? Which then gets you into their home to exactly to your point and gets them to sort of think about that they're not just selling cars and trucks, but they're selling sort of this entire mobility and energy solution, right? And and EV chargers can really be that sort of first step, right? We sell them the electric car, we sell them the 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 charging solution, guess what? Then we can marry home energy management solutions, solar, battery backup, all of those things. Um, and, you know, and, and to your point, you know, most, well, franchises, you know, dealers by their very nature are franchises, right? Which means they typically are entrepreneurs. So it's going to be interesting to see how many of them actually do make that leap into sort of this, this new paradigm of thinking beyond just selling and 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 repairing cars and trucks it's a massive opportunity but 
um, you know, it, it, it makes a huge, uh, it's going to require a huge sort of transition in, in thinking for a lot of these entrepreneurs. Yeah, we've talked, uh, or you talked a fair bit about that uh, adoption curve, uh, you know, the technology adoption curve. And usually you start with like the first two and a half percent of people being those early innovators and then like 17% early adopters. And then they call that the chasm, right? So crossing the chasm into early majority. And I think that in California, certainly we've, we've crossed that chasm and, and, you know, we're in that early majority. And so many of the people that are going solar are doing it because other people already went solar or excuse me, or excuse me, uh, EV. Many people that are getting EVs now are doing it not for the same motivations or reasons that those early innovators and early adopters did. They're doing it because everyone else is doing it. So early adopters tend to be trendsetters and, and that early majority tends to follow the trendsetters. And so I think we're seeing that on the EV side of things. Um, part of that's just been politically driven. Part of it's been federally driven. Part of it's been uh, incentive driven. Uh, but at this point, it's got, you know, it's got enough momentum that we would expect to see an increasing number, like a, a, a faster increasing number of people adopting electric vehicles. And so there, there, I would say, though, that the two things that tend to kind of fall behind the initial adoption is infrastructure, right? And so you, we don't, one of the things that we're struggling with now a little bit is, is infrastructure. And so you see these uh, you know, people that are really sort of like uh, opponents of electric electrification of vehicles. You'll see pictures of like a Tesla parked at a, at a, at a charging station in middle America uh, where it's a diesel generator that's essentially generating the electricity. And, and, and you know, the truth of the matter is, is that um, the technology, the infrastructure is lagging behind a little bit. Um, and solar also has an issue. Right. And so in terms of solar adoption, it has an issue of, of transportation. We're still really reliant upon the grid because solar works great when the sun's shining. But we call them solar panels, not lunar panels. Right. Because they don't work at nighttime. And so, you know, we have this issue of trying to figure out how do we power our lives uh, during the night. Right. During nighttime. And so storage is an issue. And so obviously there's huge opportunities and you, you, you hit you hit it on the head. You've got a gigantic battery that's sitting in your garage, um, and there's there's a way of sort of like taking the the infrastructure or the the fleet of vehicles that's being purchased, and then essentially being able to couple that with solar. And uh, there there's ways to sort of manage energy from car to home, from home to car to car to office, from office to car. And there's ways to sort of manage that and solve both problems at the same time. And we're, we're kind of working on the problems independent of each other, but we're starting to see those things come together in a more holistic way where you're talking or hearing about bi-directional charging. Ford was the first one to really start advertising that. GM is talking about it. Tesla's talking about it. But uh, I think, um, you know, there's, there's huge innovation and opportunity that is inevitably going to come down the road where individuals could be completely energy independent of the grid just by virtue of having a car and solar on their home. And, uh, you know, there, there are huge challenges with that. Like how much is bi-directional charging going to affect, you know, the, the, the longevity of the battery, for example, the, these sorts of things. And so lots of things to solve there. Um, but, uh, um, uh, Lauren, I'd love to get sort of like, uh, your kind of concluding comments on sort of how you think or what your vision for how these things are going to start, uh, in, in a future case scenario, start working together. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, we could spend a whole podcast just on sort of easily could spend a whole podcast on it. Yeah, on on sort of bi-directional charging and and all of the 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 multiple uh, acronyms of of vehicle to vehicle to grid, vehicle to home, vehicle to building, 
vehicle to load, et cetera. But, um, you know, and, and you also sort of hit one of the key challenges, right, is, 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 you know, batteries every time you cycle it. So every time you, you either charge or discharge that, that impacts the life of batteries. And so one of the, one of the challenges of bi-directional charging and what, and, and especially vehicle to grid is, is the automakers are deathly afraid of their, uh, warranty liabilities, right? So a typical battery warranty is for, for eight years. And if people start using their uh, battery to in, in replace of, say, a, a, a stationary storage in their house or something like that, most people are not going to probably do that. But if if they started to 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 do that, right? What if that battery only lasts six years, right? Then then you know GM as as the example is is got to replace that you know fifteen or twenty thousand dollar whatever it costs battery at at their cost. So that's one one of the hurdles but you know first and and, and foremost um uh i see sort of what i what we refer to as vehicle to home uh being sort of the initial focus of bi-directional charging right one of the challenges to adoption of a vehicle to grid is the utilities utilities dave quite frankly are are sort of deathly scared of of a vehicle to grid uh and you know, they, there's a lot of things they haven't figured out how they sort of pay for it. They, uh, I, I, I sat next to a utility executive years ago at a, at a conference and he said, we don't want to pay for electricity twice, meaning they didn't want to pay for, you know, to produce the power, right. And then have to buy it back from a consumer who's, who charged their EV, stored it and then sold it back to them. Right. So there's things like that that, that, uh, with, with utilities that, that are sort of holding, holding, uh, things up. And that's why most all of the automakers and everybody are focused on what's called vehicle to home first. That idea that like, like you mentioned the, the example of, of the Ford F-150 lightning, where is if, if the power goes out at my house for a couple hours, I can just tap into my EV sitting in the garage and power my refrigerator and, and things like that. Uh, the reality is, is it's not that simple. It, it, it costs about, you know, anywhere from about eight to $12,000 to buy all of the equipment that you need to, to sort of make that happen. And so that's another hurdle because a lot of people are just going to go buy a natural gas, natural gas, um, generator, uh, if they actually have a lot of, uh, uh, power outages at, at their house. But, um, vehicle, vehicle to home is probably going to be the first, the first step for for most people because the idea was going to would be that you only use that battery kind of when you need to um you know when you have those power outages and then long term we'll get into um vehicle to grid right what we'll be sending power out to the grid when there's high demand at you know at six o'clock seven o'clock eight o'clock at night in the middle of the summer when everybody's got their air conditioning air conditioners going and things like that but we've got to work through sort of the infrastructure issues and the battery longevity issues and how do we actually pay for it and, and those types of things before we get there. Um, and then I, so what I would say, and just sort of summing that up, uh, the, the near term easiest opportunity is what we call managed charging or smart charging, right? Where, uh, and there are several companies doing this in the US where they basically just determine when you, what time of day you charge your, your electric vehicle, right? And, uh, 
And so it's a combination of their software, the utility and you giving permission so that we, sh we switch when people charge, uh, for example, out here in California from the middle of the night when they're probably going to be pulling power from natural gas peaker plant uh, or something. Uh, and, and actually ultimately over time switch that to charging from solar during the middle of the day when solar production is the highest and demand is lowest. And so that's really sort of the sort of the near-term opportunity is just to switch when people charge to, to the optimum time from more renewables and less cost. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We could spend an entire podcast talking about four or five of these topics. I mean, the truth of the matter is, as it relates to that, there's examples where if you're going to charge your vehicle when the grid is really overstressed, the kilowatt hour prices are extremely high. But there's other times and in other places, even in the country today, where you can actually get paid to charge because you have an excess amount of energy. And so you're actually getting paid literally uh, to charge your vehicle at those times. And so um, I think that we, we the grid needs to get smarter for sure. Um, but each individual home can become its own microgrid and a car and solar are parts of those. And, and again, I think we could talk about each of these things for hours uh, for, uh, unto themselves. In fact, Lauren, I'd love to invite you formally back to come back another time to, to speak to us here on the Solar Podcast. I think uh, it's great to hear uh, an advocate talking about uh, the challenges that we're, that we're facing with EV adoption, but also the, it's, it's also great to hear all of the positive things are happening as well. And, and, um, and, and I think that as, uh, as, as we see both EV and solar evolve, we're going to see them come together more and more and more. I mean, you can't really talk about an electric vehicle without talking about how you're going to charge it. You can't talk about solar without talking about its uses and, and, and its shortfalls. And so I think you're going to see those things coming together. It's really a hand in glove relationship between those two things. And, and, uh, and then when you layer on top of it, the environmental benefits of being able to reduce your carbon footprint significantly, both first in the home and secondarily with the EV, it's just the most impactful thing a person can do. It's, this, it's the same reasons that you as a young kid were walking around picking up beer bottles along the side of the road to, to, to recycle. It's just the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And you said we actually, we, we did solar first and then got our EV. And that's, and that's uh, you know, back in the early days in California, about a third of consumers had solar first before they 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 bought their 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 first EV and that that's changing now but but there is to your point right? that's why I'd love to uh, I'd love to talk further about that but there is this huge sort of synergy between solar and, and and EVs they're sort of literally wet at the hip yeah yeah and as a person that spoke on the subject over 200 times I'm sure that you could yeah. talk to us a lot more about it but thank you so much Lauren for coming on the solar podcast it's been absolutely fantastic and fascinating for me to visit with you during this uh for this past hour and and uh, we'd love to have you come back and share some more of your wisdom and knowledge. And and, and the truth matters is this industry is evolving quickly. So there'll be more things to yeah. talk about next time we chat. So there, there will indeed. Thanks for having me. Take care. You bet. Thanks for listening to The Solar Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and share us with your colleagues and friends who are passionate about solar, renewable energy, and the future of the environment. We'll talk to you soon.